We're going to begin reading in Deuteronomy 32, verse 48, and we will read through chapter 33, verse 5. And then we'll get, we'll allow whoever's doing the slides to gather themselves and get to chapter 33, verse 26. So I'll give, I'll signal you in just a moment as we're reading 33, verse 26, and we'll read those final few verses of chapter 33. So because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you're able, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks, church family. And we will begin reading in chapter 32, verse 48. And we'll read through chapter 33, verse 5 to get us started. Moses writes, as he is borne along by the Spirit, these words. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nevo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession and die on the mountain which you go up. Be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. And because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Then chapter 33, verse one. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together, now go to the end of chapter 33, verses 26 through 29. Chapter 33, verses 26 to 29. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread 
upon their backs. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will indeed stand forever. You may be seated. Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century English writer, once penned these insightful words. Quote, Depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be hanged within a couple of weeks, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. When a man knows he is to be hanged within a couple of weeks, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Knowing that you are about to die focuses your attention on what matters most to you, I would imagine. Haven't been there just yet. In our text this morning, I want you to note, we find the final words of Moses, the man of God, the 120-year-old prophet and preacher, pastor in many ways. 120 years of age, has been leading the people of God for 40 years, now stands on the plains of, of Moab. This man is about to make his way up a particular mountain located in Moab outside of the promised land and there he is going to die. In Deuteronomy, Israel is about to enter the land of Canaan. And so in some sense, what we, ha- what we have in our text is we have this departing of ways. And we have this in the next text as well, next Lord's Day, which by the way, will be, Lord willing, Lord willing, emphasizing Lord willing, will be our last sermon in Deuteronomy for some time. It's been quite a trek. But we have the parting of ways here at the conclusion of Deuteronomy. Moses is going one direction. Israel is going another. And this is the first time in 40 years this would be the case. Moses would die outside of the land of Canaan. The land God had promised to the people of Israel, the land God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Moses would not actually enter that land. He would see it, but he would not take possession of it, as we're going to see in just a few moments and next Lord's Day. Israel, however, Israel will not die outside of the land of Canaan. Israel will be given entrance into the fulfillment of God's promise concerning the land of Canaan. Of Canaan. This morning, here's what I want to do. I want to take note of this contrast, even in the outline itself. We're going to walk through Deuteronomy 32, 48 through chapter 33, where we find the answer to two primary questions. You can jot these down if you're taking notes. Two primary questions we're going to seek to answer this Lord's Day morning from the text. The first question is this, why did Moses not inherit the land? Why did Moses not inherit the land? This is clear at the conclusion of chapter 32, and I want us to spend a little bit of time ruminating about what the Lord says to Moses concerning the reasons why he will not and did not inherit the land of Canaan. The second question we're going to ask and seek to answer is, why did Israel inherit the land? This is fascinating to me. Moses, the man of God, will not inherit the land. Israel, we'll describe Israel later perhaps. A bit different from Moses, the man of God, will inherit the land. 
Why this contrast? We'll talk a bit about that as we move through the text. And just, just a word of warning for taking notes. For those of you out there who love to take notes, you keep me accountable and I appreciate that. I love that. I love to preach systematically through text and so you're a help to me. But these are the two primary questions. There are so many details in the text. We won't be able to deal with all of them. I'll try to, give, to signal to you when we are going to be answer these, answering these questions. But there are so many things, contextual matters, we need to consider in order to answer the questions sufficiently and effectively. Okay, so keep that in mind as we walk through two primary questions. It may feel at times that we're dancing around the questions. We're not. We're building a little context. After all, we're Baptists. We don't dance. Not in front of others anyway, right? Okay. Let's begin by looking at our first question. Why did Moses not inherit the land? Now, before we answer the question precisely, we do need to establish a little context. Look with me if you would. Down at chapter 32, verses 48, 49, and 50. That very day, and notice that emphasis, that very day, all of Deuteronomy happens essentially within that very day. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Avarim, Mount Nebo, or Mount Nebo, if you like, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, View the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up. And be gathered to your people, as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Now we learn in the next chapter, by the way, just a little bit of background. We learn in the next chapter, chapter 34, verse 1, that Mount Nouveau is the most prominent peak of a mountain range known as Pisgah. Okay, so this is, this is the tallest point of this mountain range and, and that's where Moses is supposed to go. He's supposed to go to the top of the mountain and there he is supposed to die. Now dying, by the way, dying is common. If you don't know this, you should know this. Dying is common. However, I, I would imagine dying in response to being commanded by God to die is less common. Now on the one hand, of course, no one dies unless God decides they will die. The Lord gives life and the Lord takes it away. This is indeed true. But in the text, do you find it interesting that it's actually a command? Moses, go up the mountain and die. Go up the mountain and give your life. And he's told to die in a similar way that Aaron died. Aaron, of course, died on Mount Hor. And by the way, you need to know this. As you're reading through Deuteronomy, there are some assumptions that are made. The assumptions include that you have read through or are familiar with the first four books of the Old Testament that preceded Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy reads as a kind of final chapter to what is known as the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. And uh, many scholars have pointed this out. This is one example of that. Aaron died back in Numbers 20. The assumption is you know about this. So keep that in mind as you're reading through the text of scripture. It's often the case that, that the biblical authors are assuming that you are familiar with what precedes that particular text. And in this case, Numbers 20 is one of the texts that precedes Deuteronomy 32. 
Now look with me at Deuteronomy 32, verses 51 and 52. So God has commanded Moses to die. Now we're told why Moses is not to enter the land of Canaan, why Moses is to die outside of the land. And here it is, beginning in verse 51, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel. Where? At the waters of Meribah Kadesh. Again, by the way, in Numbers 20. In the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, verse 52, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Now here we find the answer to our first question, right? Why, why did Moses not inherit the land of Canaan? Simply put, and this is broad, simply put, because he disobeyed the Lord. It's that simple. Because he rebelled against God's instruction and he did so, by the way, as God's chosen leader in the presence of the people he was supposed to be leading. So Moses would not inherit the land because he disobeyed the Lord. Now, just a little bit about this disobedience. We're not gonna turn back to Numbers 20. You can check that out a bit later. But in Numbers 20, we're told that God actually tells Moses and Aaron, by the way, Moses and Aaron, that they are supposed to speak to the rock and the rock will give water, provide water for the people of Israel. And God was, of course, instructing Israel through this in a number of ways, not the least of which is that he indeed would provide for his people, even in extraordinary ways, if necessary. That God was in no way limited throughout the wilderness. So Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, but instead of speaking to the rock, what does Moses do? He strikes the rock. He strikes the rock, and in striking the rock, he disobeys the Lord. And it's there in Numbers chapter 20, we are told that God actually issues his judgment against Moses and against Aaron, that they will not inherit the land. So Aaron dies later in chapter 20 of Numbers. And Moses now is going to die in Deuteronomy 34. Before Joshua, the book of Joshua, which describes Israel entering and possessing the land of Canaan. And there are a couple of ways Moses' disobedience is described in our text. That is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. God describes Moses as having broken faith. That's how the ESV translates this word, this single verb, which really means something along the lines of rebelled. But it's overt rebellion, okay? It's not, it's not accidental rebellion. This is overt rebellion. Some commentators even suggest that it's akin to apostasy. That's a bit strong, but the language is strong in the text. Now, Moses, of course, is described later, keep this in mind, Moses is described later as the man of God. So it's not that Moses has finally forsaken the Lord. Moses, we've mentioned this before, we'll mention it even now so as to avoid confusion. Moses, along with Elijah, has the privilege of standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, recounted, for example, in Matthew 17, with the Lord Jesus Christ worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, indicating, according to Hebrews 11, which specifies Moses as a man of faith, indicating that Moses indeed did and will participate in the final inheritance for God's people. So don't misunderstand that, but Moses here is a warning, and the warning is that this kind of rebellion results in, in not receiving the fulfillment of God's 
promise. So he breaks faith with the Lord. And then secondly, this is described, Moses' disobedience is described as not treating the Lord as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. That's significant. It's significant that Moses' failure as a leader happened in the midst of the people of Israel. I think there's something here for us when we consider positions of leadership. There is something here that reminds us that leaders are called to a higher standard. Now, on the one hand, human leaders are just that, right? Human. And we need to remember this. We need to expect human leaders to be human because that's what humans do. Humans are typically very human in their behavior. And so that's the case. They're going to have, leaders are going to have failures and shortcomings. I learned this firsthand when I became a leader and realized, oh, so I'm the kind of person who leads. And I'm one who has tremendous shortcomings and failures. I come every Lord's day just like you come. I come in need of cleansing. I come in need of of being clothed by Christ. I come in need of being saved not simply one who recalls the moment in the past when Christ saved me, but one who needs to continually be saved by his grace. So I come just like you in that sense. But on the other hand, with a position of leadership, leaders do assume, and when we need to say this over and over and over again, especially, if I may, especially in our cultural climate, leaders assume a stricter judgment. James 3.1, for example, warns us, not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And I think the story of Moses is a reminder of this reality. Moses' sin was in front of and in the presence of God's people. And as a result, it merited God's judgment. I'm reminded, I'm reminded of something that Sinclair Ferguson once said. Sinclair Ferguson, by the way, I commend his works to you. Um, he is... He's a tremendous theologian in the Presbyterian tradition and he's had an immense impact on me and many others. I think Sinclair is a tremendous man of God, a pastor and a theologian. But Sinclair Ferguson once said these words, rather than assessing God's judgment on the basis of our sin, consider assessing the severity of your sin on the basis of God's judgment. It's easy for us, isn't it, to look at the text and to consider that Moses, okay, he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Is that really sufficient reason to bar him from actually participating in the blessing of entering the land of Canaan? But what we're doing, if we do that, is we're actually evaluating the severity of Moses' sin on the basis of our own sense of severity. And and you see, here's the trickiness of sin. The trickiness of sin is that it deceives us. We've imbibed, we've imbibed a filter and a canon and an evaluation of the severity of sins that is broken. And so what, what Sinclair Ferguson suggests to us is that we, we come to understand the severity of sin on the basis of God's judgment against sin. And we don't then turn to God's judgment seeking to sit in judgment over an evaluation of the justification of such judgment as sinners. By the way, the place, chiefest of all, the place where we learn the severity 
of our own sin is where? The cross. One theologian, 20th century theologian, who's now passed away, said, no one really understands what sin is until they come to trust in the God-man who must die to redeem sinners. It's on the cross where we finally recognize the severity of our sins. In order to redeem people who have sinned, it demanded not just any sacrifice, it demanded the sacrifice of the one who is truly God, truly human in one person. That's where we learn at the foot of Golgotha, at the foot of the cross, that's where we learn the severity of our own sins. And so just as a word of encouragement and perhaps even admonition, that's, it is always a risk for us to evaluate God's judgment instead of evaluating the severity of our sins on the basis of God's judgment. And because Moses did not trust and obey the Lord in this case, because he disobeyed the Lord and God did not permit him to enter the land, a question raised from time to time is this. Because what God did do is God permitted Moses to see the land, right? In the text, you saw that. Moses is allowed, he says, go go up on the mountain and view the land. You're gonna get to look at the land, but you can't actually go into it. And so some people ask, is that a demonstration of God's grace and mercy or is that a demonstration of God's judgment? And the answer, I think, is yes. On the one hand, Moses is reminded along with all Israel that God will indeed judge sin. He's reminded of this and Deuteronomy 32 verse 51 is a vivid reminder of it. But on the other hand, Moses is privileged to see the fulfillment of God's promise from afar. And he sees it. And this is really in line, if you could jot this down if you're taking notes, Hebrews 11 verse 13, that pictures these Old Testament saints seeing from afar the fulfillment of God's promises. I think this is a kind of picture of that. Moses still had the joy of that moment when his faith was sight in part. In part as he communed with the Lord and as he died. Well, we've seen why Moses did not inherit the land because he disobeyed the Lord, overtly disobeyed the Lord in the presence of God's people. Our second question is this, why did Israel inherit the land? We're gonna spend a little bit longer on this one and we'll see as we make our way through this because there is so much text. But why did Israel inherit the land? Now again, before we get to the specific answer to the question, we need to get a sense of what is going on in the text. Look with me, if you would, at Deuteronomy 33, verse one. Deuteronomy 33, one, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. So you have, you have this story in Deuteronomy, Moses, go up the mountain, see the land, and die. But then before he does this, because chapter 34 picks back up, verse one, with that story, before he does this, you have this parenthetical note, and, and this note consists of what is oftentimes referred to as the blessing of Moses. Moses' final words, as it were, his final written words, we should say. Now, what I want to do is I want to spend a few moments familiarizing ourselves with this blessing by noting a few details. I, and I struggled, just to be frank with you, I struggled with, with how to do this well. Because in the blessing, what Moses does is the same thing, really, 
that Jacob does. Jacob offers a blessing in Genesis 49. And Moses takes each tribe and he says something about that tribe. And so I thought, well, should this be a 12-point sermon? Well, I decided against it. And all God's people said amen. But we are going to make a few notes as we move along. And we'll get there. We'll pull all this together, Lord willing, in his mercy and his grace. Okay, so bear with me. As, as a wise pastor, I think, once said, I think this is a pastor Philism, I think. Um, something like, you know, sermons at times do feel like you're marching through concrete. And this is true. In some sense, we're doing that, but I hope the payoff is great. So let's, let's take note of a few things here in the text. You may notice that in this blessing, Deuteronomy 33, that each of the 12 tribes are addressed except for one. Simeon is never mentioned. Simeon is never mentioned out of the 12 tribes. And there's some discussion about this. Why in the world is Simeon left out? Some commentators have pointed out that we learn from Genesis 49.7 that Simeon was to be scattered in Israel. So there was some sense of judgment on Simeon in Genesis 49. It seems to me that the tribe of Simeon lost, perhaps we could say it this way, their individual status as a tribe. It, they didn't cease to exist. Don't misunderstand me. But they lost this strong, accented individual status as a tribe because according to Joshua 19, verses two through nine, Simeon simply inherits several towns within the territory given to Judah. So, so there's some sense in which Simeon or a part of Simeon is just subsumed under the tribe of Judah. Maybe that's why here. I tend to lean toward, yes, that is why, but we can't be certain why Simeon is left out. Perhaps there is a prophetic element to this absence. And there are two tribes that receive the most attention in this blessing. Two tribes that receive a great deal of attention. One is the tribe of Levi. And two, the tribe of Joseph. So the tribe of Levi gets a lot of attention and the tribe of Joseph gets a lot of attention. Now Levi plays a prominent role, doubtless, because the Levites were given the responsibility and stewardship of, of discerning God's will in difficult matters, of teaching God's law to Israel. They were given the privilege of, of exercising the priesthood and so out of the Levitical tribe came the priests. So they were tasked with overseeing the tabernacle. And so look with me, if you would, at verse 8. Deuteronomy 33, verse 8. And again, we're not going to look at all the details, but some of these. Verse 8, give to Levi your tumim. Now, what in the world is that? We'll come back to that. And your urim. Okay? To your godly one. And notice whom you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah. Now, what are these two things, tumim and urim? We don't know entirely. Some think they were stones. What we do know is they were two objects that were placed in the breastpiece of the high priest. And they were used to ascertain the will of the Lord on difficult matters. In other words, where God's law didn't speak directly to an issue and, and this was challenging and God's people had to make a decision, the high priest and the other priests would utilize the tumim and urim and help them make a decision. Because after all, the Lord 
taught Israel that the lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They believed that there weren't coincidences. And God had given them these two objects to help determine his will. If you want a couple of passages on that, by the way, you can jot these down. Exodus 28, verse 30. Exodus 28, 30. Also, 1 Samuel 14, verse 41. And I'll give you one more. Ezra chapter 2, verse 63. These are just some passages. If you want to learn more about these obscure objects given to the people of Israel through the high priest to determine God's will. And then notice verse 10. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10. Remember, the Levites are in charge of helping determine the will of the Lord for God's people. Verse 10, they, the Levites, shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. So it was the Levites who were to instruct God's people in Torah or in the law, in God's instruction. And it was the Levites from whom descended the priests and the priests were to oversee the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the incense and so forth. So they play a central role here. Second tribe that plays a central role, as I mentioned, is the tribe of Joseph. We won't say much here except to say, if you look through verse 13, 14, 15, 16 of chapter 33, you'll find that the focus is on the land of Joseph. Now remember, I know this is a fair amount, especially, by the way, especially if you're not familiar with your Old Testaments. And I'm I'm acutely aware of that because when I came to know Jesus Christ, I had no idea who Joseph was. I couldn't tell you who Moses was. Not really. I came to know the Lord out of a context where I just was not saturated with Bible stories. I didn't know Bible language. I didn't know Christian ease. So I want to say that because if you're in this room and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Don't feel like you're out of place. It just wasn't that long ago that I felt the exact same way So don't be discouraged if that's where you are and feel free to ask questions. I know there are so many facets of this text that are just difficult if we're not familiar with the the Old Testament. So Joseph, one of the tribes, was eventually divided into two sub-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they're mentioned in the text, but the point regarding Joseph is simply this the land is going to be large that Joseph inherits. And it's going to produce tremendous crops. That's the whole point in Deuteronomy 33 concerning Joseph. So those two tribes, Levi and Joseph, and then there are a whole host of other tribes that are mentioned and not a whole lot is said about them. In fact, it's really similar to what Jacob says back in Genesis 49. So we're not going to go through all the details about them. You can read through those. If you have any questions, you're welcome You're welcome to ask me after the service or send me an email. I love talking about God's word together. And if I don't know the answer to it, I'll just uh, email Pastor Tim, okay? All right. As important as anything, as important as anything for you to see in this blessing, Deuteronomy 33, is the way it begins and ends. That's what you really need to see, okay? Okay? So if you took a nap the last 15 minutes, wake back up. If your neighbor's taking a nap, bump them, okay? So that's extremely important. The very beginning of the blessing and the very end of the blessing, we need to grab a hold of. The blessing of Moses begins and ends with the grace and the power and the goodness of God. God is actually the focus. 
Look with me at verse two, where Moses says these words. The Lord came from Sinai. Now we're in Deuteronomy 33, verse two. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the 10,000s or tens of thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. This is a description of the Lord descending on Mount Sinai to meet with the people he had redeemed out of Egypt. And notice that the Lord comes from, or maybe even with, tens of thousands of angels. Now look toward the end of the chapter, verse 26. So the Lord met with, his, met with his people on Mount Sinai. He became their king, as the text goes on to say. And then verse 26, there is none like God, O Jeshurun. And Jeshurun is just another name for Israel. There's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Why do we point this out? Because you need to understand as we're seeking to answer this second question, why did Israel inherit the land? You need to understand that Israel would inherit the land not because of anything Israel provided. Israel will not inherit the land because of the competence and faithfulness of their human leader. Moses, the man of God, is dying outside the land. And that's why you must see these two questions together. Moses, the man of God, is dying. And he will not inherit the land. Israel, God's unfaithful people, they're going to go in. Israel will inherit the land because of the undeserved blessing from their sovereign God. It's that simple. Why did Israel inherit the land of Canaan? If you want to put it in a word, grace. It's that simple, mercy. And grace and mercy from a God who is capable of doing whatever he chooses. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he chooses, as God's word teaches us on a couple of occasions. And it just so happens that what God chooses is to extend Grace and mercy and kindness to undeserving sinners like Israel. Israel must remember, as verse 27 says, the eternal God is your dwelling place. That's why Moses concludes this blessing with God and not with Israel. Remember, Israel, the eternal God is your dwelling place. You've wandered through the wilderness, now the desert, for 40 years And if you've learned anything, it is that you can trust the God who has rescued you. Continue to trust him. And then, I love it, if you're familiar with the hymnody, somewhat recent hymnody. I think it was probably written in the 20th century, actually early 20th century. Don't quote me on that. Leaning on the everlasting arms. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. I assume that's where the imagery comes from. And notice, and he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. In other words, as God spoke things into existence in Genesis 1, so he can speak victory for his people into existence with a word. 
By the way, I'll try not to get too far off into this. There is a movement today that contends that we ought to speak things into existence. This is a confusion between the creator and the creature. God speaks things into existence. You are free to agree with what he has spoken. It hurts my heart every time I hear of, I, and I mean sincere people oftentimes, sincere people who contend that we have the authority to simply say a word, cancer will cease. Sickness ceases. And if I could be frank with you, I was a part of that movement for a season and became disillusioned with it because I found that we were saying things and people were still dying. So either God was a liar or we misunderstood his word. I opted for the latter, not the former. We can trust God's word. God speaks things into existence and he calls us to trust him, to trust in his sovereign and benevolent power. That's just an aside. Didn't intend on even saying it, but there you have it. It's said. And once it exits the mouth, it's out there, right? So Israel will inherit the land because of the undeserved blessing from their sovereign God who is capable of speaking victory into existence. And this, this imagery, by the way, of God being their home, this is very similar to Psalm 90, verse 1. And Psalm 90 is the psalm that Moses writes. Psalm 90, verse 1, that reads these words, if I can find it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's the same word used in Psalm 90 as we find here in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. I remember Tan and I going through a difficult season of life when we, we felt unsettled. It was just a challenging season. And we didn't know where the Lord wanted us. We wanted to be where the Lord wanted us, but we just didn't know where that was. You ever been there? We wanted clarity. And the Lord didn't give us clarity for some time, I'll, I'll be honest with you. What he did give us is in the midst of a lack of clarity, we could also have clarity concerning our final home. He reminded us that he has always been and will always be our home. So that we may not know where we should live or where we ought to be or what job we ought to take, what ministry we ought to participate in, the Lord is our home. He is our dwelling place. And this is what Moses exhorts for the people of Israel as he's wrapping up this, this blessing. And their blessed position in Deuteronomy 33 is the result of the saving work of the Lord. And so he says in verse 29, at the conclusion of this blessing, the very last verse, he says, happy are you, O Israel. Interesting way of saying it. Who is like you? And notice he doesn't say, who is like you? You're just tremendous. Look at you, you're, you're so unique. You're great looking. You dress well. You're uniquely gifted. There's no one like you in all the universe. Now that's, that's more of a 21st century narrative. 
No, this narrative is, who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. What distinguishes those who are saved from those who are not saved? Grace. Grace given. Nothing inherent in the one saved. And so, God says here through Moses, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you. You shall tread upon their backs, promising victory. So, wrapping some of this up and we'll come to land this thing together. What this blessing in Deuteronomy 33 teaches us is that while Moses would not inherit the land due to his disobedience, Israel would. They would inherit the land due to God's grace and due to the undeserved blessing from their sovereign God. However, now this is where we've got to go because the end of the story is not Deuteronomy 34. However, this would not be the end of Israel's story in the land of Canaan. Not long after God graciously granted the land of Canaan, what would happen to Israel? They would rebel again and be removed from the land. That's where this is going. Before long, the people who had received God's law on Mount Sinai, the people over whom God himself had reigned as king throughout the wilderness, the people who had been selected graciously by the sovereign king of heaven and earth to be his people before all the nations, those people would finally rebel against the Lord and the Lord would judge them. They would be scattered and they would forfeit everything. Why? Because if there is anything we learn from Deuteronomy, anything at all, it is that we need more than instruction on what to do. We need someone to do what we do not have the power to do for ourselves. We don't simply need a God who tells us what to do. We need a God who provides us with what is necessary. So Deuteronomy is not resolved until the coming of Christ. It's not. You're left with attention, and you'll see this next Lord's Day. We're left with attention consistently throughout the Old Testament. It's not resolved until the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. You see, at Sinai, what we learn in Deuteronomy, at Sinai, God gave the law to a group of sinners. You have a group of sinners, and God graciously rescued them out of Egypt, and then he instructed sinners. And what do you get when you instruct sinners? More inventive ways of committing sin. So while at Sinai, God gave the law to sinners, at Calvary, God fulfilled the law on behalf of sinners. That's where we're going. That's where this demands that we go. And this is how we read Deuteronomy as followers of Jesus Christ. God was gracious to Israel. But dear friends, if you know Jesus Christ today, God has been far more gracious to you. God hasn't simply given you a list of what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. Indeed, we get that. But God fulfills the list for you through the person of Jesus and then empowers you through Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit to then lead a life that brings him glory. He provides it all. Everything you need, both forgiveness, as we've seen lately, and transformation in the coming of Jesus Christ you have far more than Israel had. 
And this, this is why, by the way, if you read John's gospel, I think there perhaps is a Sunday school going through John's gospel, maybe another one about to go through John's gospel. This is why John writes in John 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Israel's story serves as a warning for us this morning. Their strength would be inadequate. So is yours. So is mine. The strength of Moses, the man of God, the man who spoke face to face with the Lord, the man that so many Jews reading their Old Testaments look back to as the quintessential leader of God's people. His strength was inadequate. What's the answer? If Moses dies without fulfilling the promise, who can? And the answer, of course, is only Christ. Only Christ. The answer is God forgiving and empowering us by his grace given through Jesus Christ. So place your hope, place your trust, place your confidence, not in your own ability, not in who you are, but in who God is and has been for you through Jesus Christ this morning. If you don't know Christ, this is where Deuteronomy calls you. Chapter after chapter after chapter, it calls you away. It calls me away from my own inadequacies and into the adequacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And so this morning, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, I plead with you to do that. Submit yourself to Christ. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. If you'd like to talk to someone about Jesus Christ or about Christianity, we would love to do that. Whether you feel perhaps you've come to embrace Jesus in faith or you wonder if you've trusted Jesus Christ or you have protests about it. Any of the above, we'd love to talk with you. On your way out this morning, as you exit these doors, take a left. On the right-hand side out there, there's a room called the Crossroads. I mentioned it earlier in the welcome. Go in there, and there will be an elder in that room who would love to talk with you and pray with you and discuss with you. Come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we seek to know this sufficient Savior more deeply. We need to be done. But we're going to quote somebody to be done. We're going to quote, it's October. We're going to quote Martin Luther. (laughs) Because October 31st is Reformation Day. It's the day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the castle door in Wittenberg. So we'll quote him here. Luther summarized this reality we're talking about. That is our inadequacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save sinners. In that great hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. And I think there are something like 467 verses. (laughs) We're going to just quote one. Here's what he wrote. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And then here Luther, doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. 
Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies, his name. From age to age, the same. And hear this, and he must win the battle. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Perhaps from our perspective this morning, a challenging text, but a good text. A text given to us for our instruction, not simply to recall ancient words to an ancient people, but a text given to us to draw us ever closer to you through Jesus Christ, your son, the fulfillment of scripture. Father, we recognize this morning that Moses, the man of God, was inadequate to enter the promised land. And so he perished outside of the land. Israel, a motley group of sinners, were given the privilege of entering the land. This is a demonstration of your mercy, of your grace, and of your sovereign blessing. And yet, oh Lord God, we recognize that Israel did not stay there, but continued to rebel and were removed from the land. Even this morning, you have reminded us that we, like Israel, and perhaps if we may say, like Moses, are inadequate, insufficient, and incapable of securing the fulfillment of your promises. We're incapable of meriting your favor. We're incapable of being being sufficient and worthy to enter your presence. And so you must act on our behalf and this is precisely what you have done in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we praise you. We praise you, O God. We praise you that you must win the battle and you've secured our victory through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We long for the day when Jesus returns, when We will finally hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, knowing that any faithfulness that comes from us was provided for us in Christ your Son. We pray this for your glory and for the glory of Christ together and all God's people said.